Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, everyone. This is Leslie Gist. Uh, We have a very special guest out of Canada. Um, Her name is Miss Kimberly L. Simmons. She has a project, a very important um, project out of Detroit, and I'll let her uh, explain uh, what the project is and more about who she is. Okay. Well, hi, Leslie. I'm actually from Detroit with my my roots in, in Windsor on the other side of our Detroit River. But uh, things are picking up here. I am the president and executive director of an organization, nonprofit organization called the Detroit River Project. It's a coalition currently with about 40 members, and uh, we have a very, very specific mission. And that mission is to uh, create and designate uh, our historic Detroit River, all 32 miles of it, as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And I've been on this mission for 15 years, so it's coming to fruition now. Okay. Why is the Detroit River so important to you personally? Well, personally, I am an Underground Railroad descendant of fifth generation. I am descended from four freedom seekers, two of which ended their journey here at our river on the south side of the river in uh, what is known as uh, Windsor. However, they lived at the West End, and the West End of Windsor in the 18th, 19th century was sandwich, just like the bread. (laughs) Uh, My uh, father... Uh, is Amer- was was American, and I was born in Detroit, but I do uh, share dual citizenship, so I kind of straddle the river. But uh, I'm an Underground Railroad descendant uh, daughter and uh, quite proud of that. My family's been in the Detroit area since 1835, so we've got about 186 or so years to, to story to tell. Okay. And you have relatives that are still living in the homes built by uh, your ancestors from the 1800s? Yes. My, uh, one of my cousins and uh, my family name is Watkins. Uh, we are all descended from the matriarch and patriarch who are what were Carolyn Quarles became Watkins when she married Alan Watkins in 1844. Uh, the Watkins family is quite large. Uh, there were six children in between them. And then Alan had three others from another marriage, so there was nine children, and there's a lot of cousins. But currently, uh, I have a set of cousins that live in Sandwich today uh, in a little cluster of homes that are sitting on what was renamed in 1963 Watkins Street in honor of my great-uncle. He 
built a home by hand, and it was finished uh, in the late um, 18, eight, late 19th century. He uh, probably finished the home probably right around the turn of the uh, 20th century. However, there are three other homes that surround that and are the backyard, if you'd like to say, to a national historic site known as Sandwich Baptist Church, uh, which is the oldest or one of the oldest African-Canadian congregations in Ontario um, and uh, is very national historic site, extremely significant to the story of the Underground Railroad. It's kind of the dropping off point because it's right off the river. So the, the story of our river is very significant to this area and then to me personally. Um, 32 miles, and as some four-year-old fourth grader told me, it's not a river, it's a strait, which is true. And I told <laughs> the young man, I said, but us old, late old folks call it a river. But you're right, it is a strait. It links uh, Lake Erie and Lake St. Clair together. Okay. Well, he was, he was a... Uh, uh... Absolutely, and I, I very gratefully... Thank him for telling me that, making that fact known to his, not only to me, but to his his other uh, classmates. But uh, that river um, saw uh, the Underground Railroad as a whole from the course of its, until its end in uh, 1865 at the end of the Civil War, had about 100,000 people approximately that used that network to uh, find freedom. And, of course, that's 5 million that were enslaved, but 100,000 actually used the network. And out of that 100,000, we estimate anywhere between 25 and 30,000 of that number actually crossed our 32-mile strait. So it's a big deal. Yes, it is. Now, what do you envision um, the project to look like for visitors uh, once your vision is complete? Well, the vision actually is moving. Um, this has been a 15-year end result. Well, I shouldn't say the end result, but we'll, we'll just put it this. The centerpiece of the Detroit River Project is UNESCO designation. And that's not okay. something that you can do by sending in an application and signing off. That's long work worth of research and uh, time and effort with scholars and what have you. However, we have surrounded that mission, that centerpiece, with smaller projects. Uh, we've had a book project that was published in 2016 by Wayne State Press, uh, mm-hmm. which is A Fluid Frontier is the book, can be purchased on Amazon. We actually, as we speak, March the 22nd was the start date, uh, we have a full-blown Underground Railroad curriculum, an international curriculum. It is called uh, Resistance Along the Fluid Frontier, the Detroit River Project International Educational Curriculum, a long name, but it is currently there there are there are twenty three educators that are running the curriculum as we speak. Three uh, excuse me, teen are from the Canadian side of the river, three different school boards, school boards and their teachers are teaching to approximately out of three teachers, probably about a hundred hundred kids. On the American side we have uh, four school districts, not as many kids and not as many um, 
educators, there's eight or eight or nine educators on this side, but it's the only time ever this has been done in the world. We have one curriculum being run in two countries telling a story that mirrors each other because across our river, the stories are told back to back. So it's the same history. It depends on what time and what side of the river you're, you're on as to what you think or what you know happened. Right. Okay. Uh, so um, do you plan on having markers, events taking place on the river? Are you going to have a, a, a walking trail? What All the above. Okay. All the above. Uh, we're working with the Michigan DNR. Uh, we've partnered with them before. We partnered with them with them before the pandemic on our international heritage camp, which is called Camp Freedom at Midnight. And uh, the uh, at the time we had 25 campers. Uh, we're trying to up the up the uh, the, the uh, ante and uh, do a hundred. And what happens is for a month, they spend a month learning about their story, the story of the river. And uh, that takes them through uh, the French presence, the British, and then the American. And along the way, we intersperse the story of people of not only African descent, but the natives were here and still are, just were on their land. So that's another piece that is intended to run 12 months out of the year. In the summer, strictly outdoors. In the uh, winter, we'll do a once a month on a Saturday, Sunday weekend kind of uh, a camp, indoor camp. But uh, that actually um, is ongoing. We're, we're, we tried to re-up it here this year, but, of course, we're still in the middle of this pandemic, so we really could not get anything off the ground. But definitely in 2023, that's going to be uh, happening. So that's another piece of the pie, if you want to say. But mm-hmm. um, we've been, we've been uh, recognized by United States Congressional Resolution in October 2021. Uh, we've got uh, the Council General of Canada at Detroit. His name is Joe Comartin, and he has uh, written a letter of support on behalf of the consulate and the embassy that they are supporting us in our work because this is truly an international uh, work, this international designation for those that are listening that have not do not know where Detroit lays on a map. We're the only place in the country where we're south of Canada. We're on the north side. However, our river splits, it links two bodies of water together, and in midway the river is the international border between Canada and the United States. So what we're working on is truly an international project that uh, we are crossing our fingers and toes will be recognized by UNESCO uh, possibly sooner, but 2027 is our goal now. We've got about what's that, five years. So um, we've been working steadily for 15 years to make this happen. And we've got partners of five universities, the University of Michigan, uh, the University of Windsor, the University of Michigan, was uh, they helped – they were part of the team to write our curriculum, and uh, the University of Windsor, uh, Oakland University, uh, Wayne State University, um, probably leaving one out, York University in Toronto. Um, so we've got a plethora of not only scholars but community activists that have been working, that are working diligently to see this happen. 
because World Heritage designation uh-huh. is like Ellis Island or Statue of Liberty or the Eiffel Tower or the Grand Canyon. Those are World Heritage sites. And when people say that, you know exactly uh-huh. what you're what you're talking about. And we want uh-huh. Detroit, our Detroit River, because of its tie to freedom to be a part of that conversation. So this uh-huh. uh, tourism on the top of the hill, um, when we start talking about uh, World Heritage, there is no other uh, designation worldwide that tops it. And tourism uh, for that is tied to a World Heritage site. Now, I already mentioned Grand Canyon and Ellis Island. We're talking about a billion dollar cultural economic development project and what's so special about this particular designation it is tied to the story of people of african descent it is our story being told and in neither country neither canada nor the united states is there any there are 20 world heritage sites in canada there are 19 in the united states and none of them are tied to the story of people of African descent and freedom, none of them. This well, is a big Ellis deal. Island, Ellis Island, the Statue of Liberty is, but they they're burying that story, you know, as far as the they're buried, right? They may right. be in that story. She don't yeah, hear about sure. their their story, mm-hmm. right? Right. But their story, but this specific designation mm-hmm. is specifically drawn driven on the story of people of African descent. Correct. Now. Um, when we talk about the river to mine that are, are the most compelling and that um, have made have may have made the big screen television a popular book, any stories that you like to share about the river and freedom? Oh boy! Well, there's a few that have been tied up in projects. Um, there's the story of um, we'll say Isaac Berry. Isaac Berry is uh, tied up in a project with uh, NBC Universal. As a matter of fact, it's uh, driven from a book written by Betty DeRamus, and I think Betty DeRamus was on your podcast before. Uh, She wrote a book called Love Stories of the Underground Railroad, and one of the stories told is of Isaac Berry. Isaac Berry was a fiddler. He was enslaved in Missouri. Uh, He uh, escaped because the woman, who was the daughter of his minister, and she was a white woman, fell in love with him. And she told him that his owner was getting ready to sell him because there was some debts to be paid, taxes. And he was property, and she needed to make some money off of it. So she delivered that message, and he decided he needed to escape, and he took his fiddle with him. And he walked from Missouri, or there were many modes of travel, and he ended his journey in Detroit. It took them two weeks, I believe it's two weeks, to get him across the river because people were looking for him. Uh, okay. When he eventually, he eventually made it across the river. Uh, he was in Canada for two years, and she followed him. When she found, she followed him to Buxton, and I think he talked to one of the Shad descendants. She followed him to Buxton and was working. It had been two years, and she decided to take a job. She had left her father, the minister, decided to take a job, and 
she was strolling around one evening, Saturday night, and there was music playing, a fiddler playing music for a dance. And that is how mm-hmm. she found the love of her life. So that's Isaac Berry's story. And that literally okay. is uh, going to be coming to film uh, eventually. Uh, okay. There's the story of the uh, Vigilant Committee. Now, what's a Vigilant Committee? There were those all over the country. But Detroit uh, was about, about approximately a 1,000 men and women working together toward the story of freedom. And they had within their ranks uh, members that are famous within themselves, uh, such as uh, George D. Baptiste, who at one point was the personal valet to a president in the White House, William Henry Harrison. Uh, there's William Lambert. Neither he nor George uh, Baptiste. They were both founders of the uh, Vigilant Committee. Neither had been enslaved. Uh, they were both born free. George, actually, his 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 um, his uh, calling was he was a barber, but uh, in, at night he was the best known conductor in this in these parts. Started his uh, business, his abolitionist activity in Madison, Ohio, until the Madison of Good People of Madison, which was on the free side of the Ohio River told him, George, you got to stop or we're going to have to arrest you. So he packed up his barber pole and came to the place where he had been sending people, and that was Detroit. And he met up a man uh, by the name of William Lambert, who was born in Trenton, New Jersey, in 18, ooh, 1815, I believe it was. And uh, he had seen Detroit for the first time on a steamer. He was a cabin boy on a Great Lakes steamer. And he, I guess he thought it was a great place to land. And uh, he came back in 1835 and took up the cause of freedom. And he and George created what is known as the Detroit Vigilant Committee with another man by the name of William Webb. Uh, Those men um, are heroes. Um, Mr. Lambert bragged. He said, if anybody gets to basically our territory, they will be free. And their territory with a thousand people stretched as far as the Ohio border down to Toledo. So there was, they approximate there was probably about a thousand people that belonged to the Detroit Vigilant Committee. And they had people, stars, if you want to say, that circled this committee, that worked with them or along with them. And John Brown was one of them. Uh, John Brown said often to people that everything he knew about abolitionism and freedom and underground railroad and getting people to freedom he learned from William Lambert, a black man. So uh, that story, the story of the Vigilant Committee, is huge. Uh, They're all buried here, and one, uh, Mr. DeBaptiste, is depicted on our very famous, uh, maybe your listeners could could, uh, search for it on Google, and that is the International Underground Railroad Memorial monument and it is one of a kind it exists in two countries one side is on the on the banks of the detroit river on the detroit side and the other is directly opposite um, on the banks of uh, the detroit river in what is windsor ontario and the tower of freedom is windsor the gateway to freedom is detroit the gateway was where you came to the river to find freedom, you can see it. It's less than a half mile. It's less than a mile across our river. You see Canada, and so the Tower of Freedom was you made it. And mm-hmm. the uh, the um, 
the monument only exists. There's only one. That's the only monument in the world that's internationally one monument. So um, they're actually, they put it in a spot that was known to be a ferry boat landing, which, of course, uh, Underground Railroad Freedom Seekers used ferries. When you're around a body of water, they would use a ferry to get across. That would be one way to get there. My ancestor uh, specifically was rowed across the river in a rowboat by Mr. Lambert, as a matter of fact. But there was a ferry boat landing on both sides, and um, so the monument resides on both sides of the river where someone would have caught a ferry boat and then rowed across to find freedom. So it's, uh, I just left it. It's pretty spectacular, and it still is. It's 20 years old. How old is it? 20 years. It was, it was uh, dedicated on October the 21st, uh, 2001. It was uh, part of our Detroit 300 celebration. Detroit was uh, 300 years old, or celebrated as 300 years old. Of course, the indigenous uh, would probably argue over that point. However, um, 2001, and so last uh, year, it was 20 years old. So, okay, before so. you go, I want before we close, um, I would like for you to describe um, what the Vigilance Committee is all about why did they have to form a vigilance committee and what was their, you know, their day-to-day activity and their mission? Well, the vigilance committee, any vigilance committee, because there were some all over the country, uh, Detroit happened to have one of the largest ones and was in uh, a lot of involvement. Vigilance committees were kind of like they did it all. Freedom seekers, as they traveled from place to place, they would basically be pointed to somebody more than likely that belonged to a vigilance committee. And vigilance committees uh, housed freedom seekers as they were moving from place to place. Uh, Perhaps they gave them uh, money to survive, which, you know, might have been maybe $10 to survive and get them to another spot. Uh, In some cases, such as in Detroit, uh, George DeBaptiste, was a ferry boat owner, and so he literally rowed people. He would take people across the river himself. Uh, Mr. Lambert had rowboats, and he would row them. But uh, Mr. Lambert was uh, what is known as Detroit Station Master, and he was a member of, uh, as well as was Mr. DeBaptiste and Mr. Webb, the three, uh, the three uh, founders of the Detroit Vigilance Committee. They were all members at at one time of Second Baptist Church, which is. Uh, historically, one of the oldest churches, black churches in uh, the Midwest. It is the oldest black church in Michigan, and it is the home of the Underground Railroad, the terminus. Um, And Mr. Lambert kept detailed records as to who approached him, who came, who was leaving, who they came with. So after the war was over, people that were looking for each other, would have somewhere to start to go find their dad, go find their mama, go find their kids. Uh, so he t- he kept detailed records. They they would hide people in different places, in particular in Second Baptist. Uh, they estimate there were about five thousand that were hidden over the course of uh, the Civil War, the Underground Railroad that got across to freedom. And that's what, that's, excuse me, Kim. Did, did did he write a book like William Steele? You know, where are these records? Can we see these records today? 
Mr. Lambert wrote no books. He kept, uh, like I said, detailed records that are kept in the archives of Historic Second Baptist Church. There, that's their church history. Uh, he didn't write a book. Um, just the records. Uh, his um, life was cut short. In 1870, he was found deceased. So what may or may not have been told after that, we don't know. Um, Mr. DeBaptiste, again, was another that didn't write a story. Mm-hmm. Um, there really wasn't, you know, there was so much known about them. They were, the Detroit Vigilant Committee was the worst kept secret in, in Detroit. <laughs> it's like the mayor was involved. The mayor was a member, Mayor Chandler, his wife, uh, some of the Congress people. Uh, and we have here uh, Jacob Howard, who's buried in one of our cemeteries, uh, uh, Elmwood, which is on the Network to Freedom, uh, recognized uh, by the National Park Service as an underground railroad site because of all the vigilant uh, committee. But uh, Mr. Howard, Jacob Howard, was the senator from Michigan, and he is the one that Lincoln went to to write the 13th Amendment. Oh. So the 13th Amendment and the 14th and the 15th that people know as the Freedom Amendments, uh, Mr. Howard, Jacob Howard, Senator Howard, had his hand in that. He didn't, he didn't survive to see the 14th Amendment passed. He, he died. And it, he now, what passed. Was he? I'm sorry. How, was he uh, white or black? He was white. He was a senator. He was a senator. Um, he, uh, Howard University? He, uh, Howard, no, he, um, Jacob, Jacob Howard was from Michigan and was a U.S. Senator from Michigan. Okay. Okay. Um, and a white man. But, so uh, he, was, the Vigilance Committee was an interracial. Yes, it was. There was okay. all kinds of people that worked among the Vigilant, and in most of the Vigilant Committees. We could not have done it all alone. However, there is a myth that says that we, uh, were all the good white people helped us to freedom. That's a myth because 80%, 80% of the escapes that were using the Underground Railroad were self-emancipating. We did this ourselves. Maybe with a little help, somebody maybe pointed us in the right direction or maybe we stayed overnight in their house. But nobody took us anywhere. This was us. Jacob Howard wrote the 13th Amendment, and once it was actually passed, uh, he requested which it is. I was at uh, Elmwood Cemetery where he's buried not too long ago. He's buried under an obelisk. And on the obelisk, the 13th Amendment is engraved. That was his request. So the 13th Amendment is is engraved on the obelisk, and the obelisk itself is unfinished at the top. It looks like somebody cracked it. He asked that it be cracked and not finished, specifically to let people know that his work during his lifetime wasn't finished. He did. Uh-huh. He, he he wanted to make sure that the 14th and 15th Amendment were done. He didn't live to see them uh, actually passed. However, the 13th Amendment is engraved on his uh, at the okay, special have, cemetery. Okay. Well, I would have ended the show um, on that note, but I can't help but think about um, some a group that you remind me of, and I think you would have been part of it. Um, the Detroit. Housewives. I think that's okay. a fascinating story. Um, and Detroit the Housewives. Housewives. Okay. Um, 
they were um, an organization of black women who um, were activists. And okay. they led they led a a boycott against the meat industry for not um, hiring and paying the black butcher butchers their money, the equal pay, and they okay. successfully succeeded uh, in. Um, and what years? What, what years were that? You're right. I would have probably been leading the pack because mm-hmm. <laughs> we right, still right. have problems. People paying us our proper wage. We're right. working, and in most cases, twice as hard. Why are you not paying us at least what everyone else is getting? Oh, I, absolutely. That yeah. is, um, there's many stories. Detroit mm-hmm. is a place that, that's why the world heritage is so significant. What we're mm-hmm. trying to do is bring people here to mm-hmm. learn our stories. Mm-hmm. This is a place that, we we're, we're kind of we've graduated. I would go so far as to say we're it's not blue collar industry. We're more white collar. However, mm-hmm. this is the end of the road for the Great Migration, and so you had a lot of our ancestors that came up right off the farm, came up north because Mr. Mr. Ford said, "Come, I'll pay you five dollars a day." And instead of coming up and expanding, a lot of us are still kind of that mindset, you know, get up in the morning and go to work and go come back home, have supper, and go to bed again. So we've never really been good in this region to tell our story. Mm-hmm. Our stories are huge, and they've never been told. So this is the reason why uh, the uh, World Heritage Site is so significant for us is because it's going to give a billion-dollar industry, the opportunity to see Detroit and uh, allow Detroiters to tell their story. Okay. Now, um, before you leave, we need your contact information, and you also have authored a few books. And if you have any books or movies, uh, uh, anything, documentaries that you'd like to share um, in closing? Sure. Um, The uh, Detroit River Project has a website. And it is DetroitRiverProject.com. Very simple, DetroitRiverProject.com. There's several books. One of the uh, uh, initiatives that we did in 2016 is to get our book published, a special book itself. It won awards. It's a a book called A Fluid Frontier. You can find that on Amazon. Uh, it's the short. It's the Fluid Frontier, Slavery, Resistance, and the Underground Railroad in the Detroit River Borderlands. Long title, but if you type in a Fluid Frontier on your Google bar, you'll find it. It's published by Wayne State Press. It's on Amazon and all kinds of different places. And it's it's special because 12 chapters, six are American, six are Canadian, telling the story. So that's an international book with international authors. And uh, I have a, my own personal book I did with a friend of mine who's a uh, uh, Ph.D. out of uh, Chicago, Larry McClellan, and myself. We wrote the story of my family. Uh, it's called To the River, The uh, Remarkable Journey of Carolyn Quarles, a freedom seeker. And that's my uh, third great-grandmother, who I honor every day. Okay. Well, it's always a pleasure interviewing you. You've been on the show a few times talking about various subjects. Connected to the Underground Railroad, you are expert, and you are my go-to correspondent if I need to know or learn anything about what's happening in your area. Um, so I really appreciate what you've done um, throughout the years, and I look forward to talking to you again. 
Thank you so much, Leslie. I love talking to you too. Thank you. Okay. Have a great have a great holiday. Yes, yes, you too. Bye bye. Bye bye.